My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Daryl Cooper. He is the host of the Martyr Made podcast uh, and the co-host of the Unraveling with Jocko Willink. Um, and I am very, very happy to <laughs> to say hello to you today. Welcome to the Subversive podcast. Hi, Alex. Thank you for having me. I don't do a lot of these. Um, I say no to a lot of interviews, but I'm very excited to be here. Thank you so much. I'm I'm very excited to have you here. Um, the the first. Uh, Kind of contact I've had with your work was through the uh, infamous uh, BoomerCon thread that you yeah. made. Um, I think it was it was in summer, the summer, uh, which got a lot of traction in all sorts of corners, and people were just I think ranting and raving about it for about two weeks at least. Um, and it was it was just it was just such a perfect piece of content it it you know it 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 was um if i if i can describe it it was um you saying i understand the mind of the boomer con and here is why and you list you know i don't know what was it 20 or 30 pieces of incontrovertible even snopes proof evidence that no one could could refute uh, of why um you know people are a bit um, you know, the boomer con is a bit um, suspicious of the January 6th or the, you know, essentially how Trump is treated and also the uh, the recent election. So it was just just a wonderful thing. And it spun out in many, many quote tweets and everyone wants to talk about it. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to first praise you for that. It was a great, a great thing. Um, and, um, I I'm curious, like, how did that impact you? I guess, you know, it, it lifted your platform somewhat. Yeah. I mean, I went from, I think I had 7,000 Twitter followers when I posted that thread and those are all people for the most part that were like hardcore fans of the podcast, you know, my big long form history podcast. And so that thread was put out there, um, to those people. It was just an intimate thing between me and those, those people that, uh, I spent a lot of time with in one way or another. And it, it was crazy. I mean, people started, I saw that it was kind of going a little bit viral, but then I had a bunch of stuff to do that day. And then somebody called me up around like 5.30 that day and said, turn off Fox News right now. And Tucker was on there talking about it. And then Donald Trump talked, he said my name in the CPAC speech the next day and um, called me a brilliant podcaster. <laughs> well, you are a brilliant podcaster. I, I, should, I should put that in my, in my, my Twitter bio, but... <laughs> And, um, yeah, I think, so yeah, I think I had like 7,000 Twitter followers and now I've got like 110,000 and, um, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been very interesting. It, you know, it, it gives me a, a sort of a, a certain problem to work through, right? Because I went from 7,000 to 110,000 followers and obviously just because of what that thread was about and who was sharing it and how it got put around, I don't know, 80, 90,000 of those new followers are people who maybe like I was describing in that thread who are not necessarily 
I mean, I'm, you know, my politics in, in a lot of ways are further to the right than Attila the Hun. So like, um, I'm, I'm, uh, constitutionally and like temperamentally emotionally on the side of those people, but I'm also probably far, far, um, outside the Overton window that any of them could tolerate. And so figuring out how to, um, how to communicate with those people, communicate certain ideas with them, because I love those people. These are the people I grew up with. You know, they're my aunts and uncles and grandparents. And a lot of us feel that way. You know, you, you even people who, um, who, who pretend to have contempt for those people to get by in their social lives. Um, you know, they came from those places and, um, whether they say so or not, there's like a part of you that gets damaged every time you remain silent when people are talking shit about your family and your hometown and the people and values that you, that you grew up with. And, um, I, I'm unapologetic in the fact that like, you know, I don't feel like I need to justify it or rationalize it or provide a reasonable argument for it. I'm just on the side of those people, you know, the, the normal people whose goals in life consist of, um, raising a good family and, you know, having a comfortable retirement and making sure that their kids are all right. Uh, those are the, those are the people whose side I'm on, you know, and anybody who, uh, who, who uh, makes that more difficult wittingly or unwittingly is not on my side. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And I, I like the, uh, I like the idea of uh, politics to the right of Attila the Hun. <laughs> <laughs> it's um i i think that's at least in, in my perspective that's the the main divide that i see now on the on the right you know you know you you've described the 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 mind of the boomer con um but there is definitely a schism there's a there's a shift and there is there are people like us i would probably be be to the right of Attila the hun in many ways as well uh and that's kind of my interest as well and the people that i i have on this podcast tend to be in that, in that sphere as well um but yeah, I think a, a major challenge for for you know content creators like us is to digest the information that lies beyond the gates and make it palatable for the for the people who essentially have you know have the the money to to sponsor to to promote a lot of the a lot of the things that go on politically. Even if they're not the richest people, they're you know the the, the silent majority is still is still where you know where people can actually put money into politics or do get things done. So um, I think your podcast does that very well. Um, and you, I, I just also wanted to say this: you have a just an amazing way of of um, processing information and a, a gift for storytelling. I have to say like the fact that you can, I know how hard it is to, to research a podcast, to do it on your own. Cause the conversation's easy. That's why I'm doing this as a conversation to me. This you know, the, uh, to, for me, it's not honestly, it's why I don't do this stuff. I get really nervous usually in conversations and I'm pretty reclusive, which is weird considering the fact that I have a podcast, but yeah, the fact that I can sit in my cave and like really just dial in and work on something by myself until I feel like I have it right is way easier for me. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty like, uh, you know, I got a little bit of social anxiety. That's why I don't do many interviews and stuff. So. Yeah. Well, you're very good at it. I just want to give you a lot of praise because I did, I think I did just one episode like that. And like at the end of it, I was, I recorded it in one go and I tend to speak really fast and I was just drenched. <laughs> this yeah. Oh, I'm the same way. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a very challenging. So I don't know. I, I think it's, you know, probably, you know, to each their own, everyone, uh, everyone's very good at, at what they're good at, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very special skill. And I think you're, you're using it, uh, to, to, uh, big effect. Um, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think figuring out how to tell good stories 
is is what this is all about, right? Even if you're dealing in nonfiction or if you're dealing in ideas, you know, you have to build an idea, a story around those ideas, because that's how people understand things and how they relate things to their past and future is, is through narrative, narratization. It's like a basic function of the human mind, right? Take in new information and fit it into an ongoing story that you've got going. And, um, you know, we, we, if you, if you look politically, for example, like, you know, one of the things that happened when Donald Trump became, well, when he was running in the primary, right, is uh, he turned things like um, approval for the Iraq war in the Republican Party among the base on its head, like overnight, he was in South Carolina. And he said this whole war was a lie and it was a terrible idea. And he, people were like, oh, this is it. He's tanked. He's finished. And it was the exact opposite. And I think like the reason why is, you know, um, people knew by that point that like this was that they were, you know, that the Republican Party and the Republican base were like carrying around like this burden, like they were never going to get out from under it because it was their war. It was a Republican war. And, you know, they just somebody had to come along and give them permission, give them a framework that would allow them to say, no, this was a bad idea. And by saying that, we're not siding with Nancy Pelosi and all that that entails. You know, we're siding with our own side and our own people, but we now have like a, a way of talking about this war that allows us to express what was really like the building feeling underneath the surface for a long time. And so like right now, my next major series for, for Martyr Made, my podcast is on the history of the American labor movement. And that was my plan. It was, it was the next series that was coming up before my big thread blew up and I got all these new followers. And I considered that almost like, a, like, you know, uh, like, like I look at that almost like a major responsibility now because I have a lot of these folks on the right who are, it just, it's an incredible time among like for, for the potential in the like normie conservative sphere right now. You know, it's just such a, a you have a bunch of people who have been locked into like, just decrepit ideologies on, you know, class relations and economics and militarism, all of the police state for that matter, all of these things for decades. And right now there is this massive, massive opening to get people to reconsider that. And so, you know, I had actually like my first two episodes of that series pretty well mapped out. And once I got all of these new followers from this very specific place, I, I just was like, okay, I have to like reorient the way that I'm going to tell this story because there's going to be a lot of people in here that the minute I say the word anarchist, you know, talking about someone uh, like, like like Parsons in the Haymarket Affair or something, they're just going to, that's it, they're done, right? They're going to see Antifa in their head and they're finished. And so, you know, figuring out how to tell that story in a way that um, that lets people know that these are these this is the this is the best part of America, you know, that the labor movement is one of the best stories in our history, and that these are some of like the, the great heroes of American history. And even if they are anarchists, some of them, even, you know, that these are, that these were the common people who were rising up to, uh, you know, renegotiate the power relationship that they had, you know, inherited really from like British colonial times. It's a great American story, but you have to tell it in a certain way that's going to get past those triggers and those filters that have been built in for so long. Yeah, you, you make a, a really good point here. And it's something that I, I probably fail at myself. I feel like I'm a bit of a shepherd of people out of like the IDW space, which is, you know, a lot of um, kind of former leftists, uh, maybe a little bit of boomer, boomer conservatives that follow me for my feminism takes, you know, people, people like that type of stuff. Uh, but mostly it's, you know, people who have kind of the IDW or you know, intellectual dark web is a bit exhausted. It has no solutions. It's like, it's just podcasting until, you know, it's a dying breath. Um, and in a way I've kind of, 
I've kind of, you know, managed to to build an audience in that sphere, but um, I've also not really catered my message enough. You know, I think that that's a very good, that's a very good approach of yours to explain stuff because sometimes I just like, okay, I'm, I feel like, oh, the arguments have been made. Let's start from, you know, we're 80% of the way through and we're just talking about the details here. But I get, sometimes I just get people asking me like, so what's wrong with liberalism? And I'm like, hi, I'm not going to tell you again. <laughs> I've told you many times. <laughs> Listen to my earlier stuff. So it's, yeah. a, I don't know, it's it's an interesting space to be in. But I think, yeah, you've, you've got the, the right approach there. Great. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I'm most proud of with, with my podcast is, um, you know, like my first series was on the early history of Zionism and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict up to 1948. And, um, you know, I, I I think I read... I read between 70 and 80 books. I read 1,500, 2,000 articles, papers, diary. Just, I mean, I read literally just about everything I could find for a couple of years before I even started that thing. And um, I really tried to present the perspective of the European Jews before, you know, the, the, the modern advent of political Zionism in the world that they were coming out of as though it. And also to uh, to portray uh, the invasion of uh, Palestine by these colonists um, from the perspective of the Arabs and the Palestinians. And one of the things that I'm most proud of is uh, I have gotten a couple hundred emails from uh, Israeli Jews, including some of them who are active duty IDF serving in the West Bank territories, uh, who have written and told me that listening to my podcast softened them up on the Palestinians and gave them like, you know, it, it's actually affected the way that they interact with the people they see on a daily basis. And I've gotten a couple hundred um, uh, letters, or emails rather, from Arabs around the region who said that it changed the way that they looked at like the Jewish situation when they were first coming in. And, um, you know, and then I've gotten a couple hundred emails from both sides saying I'm a shill for the other side, but that's always going to happen. So... <laughs> You know, I have to be able to do that, right? I mean, the thing is, like, there's very little in history that, other than, you know, other than, other than communism, and even that I consider it a fault of, like, my own fault in a way, um, even though I have trouble accepting this emotionally, I still consider it kind of my own fault. Communism is really the only thing I have no sympathy for whatsoever, and that I, and, and, and that knowing its history um, only radicalizes me further against it, right? It's about the only thing. Just about everything else, when you're dealing with ethnicities, when you're dealing with nations and tribes and peoples and those type of things, um, the better you know the history, the more the easier it is to have sympathy for both sides, usually. Um, and, you know, like, and so we, we do ourselves uh, a service when we, when we pay attention to the arguments of, of another side, unless they're communists. And... Um, like when I did my, I did a series on uh, the history of Jim Jones and People's Temple, um, the suicide cult back in the '60s and '70s. And um, you know, when I, I the reason I did that, I, I did that series is because I was reading a book about it, and I'd heard about drink the Kool Aid and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't know. I just it, it's in the popular culture. You think that this would be a major thing that 75 percent of the people that died out there in the jungle were black people. And specifically, they were older, mostly older black people and, and the kids of these people who had come over to the Bay Area as part of the Great Migration. And so I was like, well, that's obviously like a massively key part of this story, right? Like if, if 75% of the people that committed suicide out there, talking 900 something people, had been first generation uh, immigrants from Mexico, 
we'd be like, well, that's the, that's the key part of the story we have to talk about. Right. And so, um, I started researching it and it drew me into this like long seven episode, you know, probably 30 hour long project, uh, kind of going, starting from, you know, the 1950s and walking through like the rise and kind of peaking and radicalization of the protest and civil rights movements. And then it's collapse into, uh, you know, violence and insanity as you get into the late sixties and early seventies. And in order to do that, like, you know, I, I know that I'm going to have a lot of people who are listening who are, um, like if you criticize anything that's going on with the civil rights movement or the protest movement in the sixties, they're automatically going to classify it as something that they really are going to be uh, prejudiced against like immediately. And so I made it very clear, you know, those people like by telling, by, by bringing the historical context of the great migration, and everything into it, um, that I have sympathy for the causes that were behind these things. Um, now here's what happened, you know? And I, I think, you know, again, that one also sort of, um, helped a lot of people understand what happened back then. Yeah, that's that's definitely news to me. Very, that's super interesting. I remember I actually listened because I was interested in that as well, and I listened to a few podcasts, and not 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 your one, unfortunately. And they never mentioned that little <laughs> tidbit. It's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, you also had a, a, a podcast on uh, kind of the, the Bolshevik takeover uh, of Russia. And this is kind of a, a subject that's that's close to me regionally and in terms of my family, because um, uh, we have a lot of stories about this this event uh, in my family. Um, my grandparents on my mother's side were uh, both in Moldova when the Soviets um, came in and they were kind of telling Soviets, trading stories about the Soviets and the Nazis and who treated them better. And um, surprisingly, it was the Nazis. <laughs> the Nazis were very... Not that surprising. <laughs> very mild in comparison to the Bolsheviks. And I mean, this is just probably one of the, the more horrendous pieces of family lore. Um, but my my grandmother was, um, was from a family with a, a lot of sisters and she was the eldest sister. Uh, and when the Soviets came in, they they heard, you know, a few days before that they were, you know, going to come in and they dug some form. Essentially, they they dug a, a, a rape bunker under the, an area that they wouldn't discover. Uh, but one of the girls and I, I don't remember if it was one of my my um, grandmother's sisters or one of the neighbors. I mean, this is, you know, my grandmother died a long time ago. Can't can't fact check. Uh, but you know they were hearing her get raped by the soldiers, but they didn't want to make a they wouldn't want to make a sound because they were all hiding and under. Uh, and they said they they killed all of their uh, livestock. Um, they didn't take it for food. They just massacred everything in their in their wake, and uh, they didn't burn down the villages. But they were just completely just you know. And they said they they had no problems with uh, with the German soldiers, but the Soviets were just you know almost like a. Um, the Mongol hordes when they, when they came through. So yeah, I don't know <laughs> what to say. That's just like one, one piece of family lore that's, that's happened to to someone close to me, but yeah, there's, there's yeah. Millions of stories like that. Yeah. You know, the, I, one of the things I said in that series or in that podcast episode was that, you know, whether or not one was worse than the other, like I, I, there's it's not a conversation you can have like in our society. And so I don't have it with people. It's not worth having, you know, but like, uh, um, I can tell you which one scares me more. And for sure the Bolshevik regime scares me more for the simple reason that, uh, you know, that I, re- I recognize the Nazis basically, you know, Hitler is basically a warlord with badass panzer tanks and a very well-organized technological military machine. Um, 
you know, I think him and Genghis Khan would have recognized each other or something like that, right? Um, the the Soviet the Soviet regime, um, and especially up until you know fifty six destalinization. Um, I don't think the world's ever seen anything like that. I don't think the world had seen anything like what was going on there. Um, I, I mean, it's it was an eruption of what we used to call Satanism world. Uh, the scary thing about the Nazis is like what they might do in order to get control of you. The scary thing about the Soviets is what they were going to do once they got control of you. And, um, you know, that's a frightening thing. I mean, throughout the entire like period of the 1930s, um, and again, the, the Nazis conducted themselves in the East uh, quite barbarically in terms of like the way they conducted the war. I don't defend, I don't defend the way that they, uh, you know, the, 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 their reprisal tactics and things were, were something that, uh, you know, um, other, other European countries had uh, to a large extent moved past, although that's um, exaggerated to a large degree when you get into what, you know, Churchill was doing and stuff <laughs> during the Second World War. But um, but not to defend that, uh, but still, like, you go from 1933 when they took over up to 1939 when the war broke out, and the Nazi regime had executed about 10,000 people. And a lot of those people were communists who threw a bomb and, and actual people who needed to be executed. Um, a good number of those people were. They were, or they were subversive, caught spying for the Soviet Union, for example. About 10,000 people in six years. Um, you know, the Soviet Union was killing 10,000 people a day sometimes. It's just, it's unbelievable. And um, yeah, it's, 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 it's just hard to fathom. It really is. Like it's the one, it's the one thing that just is still completely like, I, I went through, I've read books about like a lot. I got on Aztec kick for a while. I've read a lot of books about Mesoamericans and the Aztecs. And on some level, I feel like I understand what they were about. And when I look at the Soviet regime, again, the, the, the up to the, up through, especially the early period, you know, when they were, uh, you know, tearing down churches or turning them into brothels and porn theaters and and doing things like that. I mean, this is just a um, an eruption of evil into the world, in my eyes. And uh, again, like I always try to make it a rule to to tell myself that if that's how I see something, then it's probably because there's something I'm there's just a piece of the puzzle that I don't quite have yet. But I cert I certainly don't have it because you know, I have no tolerance for it. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is kind of the, the, the core of, of what also my family observed was that they took, you know, the, the most toxic elements of society and took their resentment and turned that into a force. Uh, and that force was big enough to, to tear down everything. And it was big enough to act locally because you don't need, even need a centralized, you know, you don't need to direct the, the village alcoholic or slacker or maybe mentally ill person who's already violent to, to start murdering people. You just need to say, go. And they do. And they, and that's, and that's what they did. Um, and, you know, resentment is a, is a very, very powerful force. And, and like you said, it's, it's pretty much demonic. I mean, if you, if you were to just, imagine the devil in, in in one feeling in one just in one urge it would be that that resentment turned to to revenge against against creation itself um and yeah i think that's that's what communism does best you know that's that's the you know that's a crystallized resentment right there <laughs> so yeah i think that's a that's a really good uh, good observation um i wonder do you think 
we can um, conserve anything. Can there be any conservatism without, um, without kind of a metaphysical level, without God? Is there is there any way that um, politics can can maintain itself? Can have um, can have any sort of stable founding without anchoring itself in, in something metaphysical and believing in something higher? Because to me, it feels in in a way that you know liberalism in a way is entropy. You know, I think Curtis Yarvin makes this point, right. um, and it's 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 continual decay if you do not anchor it in something but anchor it right. anchoring it in something would mean that you would have to declare your principles and stick to them they're non-negotiable and you don't you know start you know <laughs> deciding that tomorrow oh no we've evolved we have moral evolution um so i don't know what what's what's your feeling about that because i'm i'm a bit conflicted about it as well um well i mean you you something you said is perfect is that you know leftism or liberalism if you like uh is not a, it's not a program, it's a process, right? And it's a process that'll, it's a process like rust and it'll continue until it's arrested by another force, right? And that's always the challenge because what it means is um, it doesn't suffer from being lazy for a generation or something. It can always just pick up where it left off. Whereas the side that's trying to preserve, you can't let your guard down at all because eventually you know the minute you do that and the zombie is going to punch through that window and now that you have to deal with that and now you can't cover the under it just you know becomes leaks in the dam at all times and and you know maybe the ancient wisdom is that uh you can't hold it off forever ragnarok's always going to come and order is going to break down um but uh you know that's not a reason for despair as far as like i mean you know one of the whether or not it can be we can conserve anything over the long term without God or, or the transcendent. Um, I'm, I'm skeptical of that, but I'll put, I'll say that maybe, you know, um, maybe another way, and, and, and I'm not sure that this would work, but maybe another way, um, and, and maybe this is a different way of saying the same thing, um, but is, is to get away from this, this tendency that we have, uh, especially on the American right, um, the left does not suffer from this so much. Um, this is, God, it's the cancer of every libertarian and, and IDW person out there is that you have to defend all of your positions. All If you can't get into an argument uh, with Ben Shapiro about it and defeat him, then you have to change your mind. And that is ridiculous. I mean, it, you know, it is perfectly fine to say, no, this is how, I, I don't even know why I feel the way I feel about this, but this, I feel very strongly about it. And the fact that you can, you've got a higher verbal IQ than I do, um, is not going to talk me out of it. You know, there's lots of things that I believe fully that if I were to sit down, you know, with, with the right person, they'd kick my ass in a debate. And anybody that watched it, even people that agreed with me would be like, oh man, Daryl got his ass kicked, but he's not going to change my mind on that. You know, and people say, well, then you're not open-minded, you're not flexible, or you're not thinking for yourself or whatever it is, that is just nonsense. You know, it's perfectly fine to defer to tradition, defer to custom, defer to um, people that you look up to and trust and admire or the history of your society or civilization. You know, you're just, you're one person, you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years old or whatever. And, you know, you've been thinking about this issue part-time off and on, like, you know, for, for some period of your life, uh, chances are that like the, inherited idea that you got on that from your family, from your society, um, is something that people have been working over and thinking about and and putting into practice to see how it actually holds up for a thousand years or for 500 years. 
And to simply say, like, you know, even if this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, that like that guy, you know, he argues a little bit better than I do. And I got to say, he's got some good points. I'm going to defer to, uh, you know, my family, my society and, and my traditions. And because I'm not wise enough to overrule them, you know, and that doesn't mean that you shut your own, your own rational faculty off. It's, it works similar to the way that like doubt versus dogma works in the Catholic church, right? It's like, um, you know, you, you have the, the church doctrine. This is, this is like a huge difference between the Catholic church and Protestant church, right? The Orthodox as well is that, um, you know, if you go to a Protestant church, um, and the Christians in my family are all Protestant and, uh, I love all those people. And I even have a certain amount of love for Protestantism in general. But like, um, you know, it's that you go to church on Sunday and you're going to hear what the preacher learned in Bible school or what he's thought about since then or some books he's read or or, or whatever. And that's what you're going to hear. Um, you go to like an Orthodox national church or to the Catholic church and you can go ask the priest a question. You know, why do good things happen? Bad things happen to good people. And you can say, well, it's interesting that you ask that because we've actually been talking about that for 1,500 years. In fact, our very best and most good people have been thinking about that for 1,500 years. And it gets better. We wrote it all down. And so we have this entire like long tradition. And after all that, like here is where we're at right now. doesn't mean it's not necessarily going to change at some point in the future, but this is where we're at and that's the doctrine. And so maybe that's something that you're just like, gosh, like, it just doesn't like, I just, I really have trouble, you know, with that one, right? Like the Catholic teaching say on gay marriage is that it, you can't have gay marriage or abortion, but you're a modern person. You grew up in modern America and it just doesn't, you just can't quite emotionally like get it, right? That's fine, actually. What you do is you say, I'm going to defer to this grand tradition, to this, you know, to this, to this tradition that has been handed down to me that people far smarter, far more committed good, good, pure people, pure soul have been working over with, with everything in their guts, like through for 1500 years, I'm going to defer to them on it. Uh, and so, so that's the, that's like the infallibility of the doctrine or whatever, right. Is that deferral, but then, uh, the doubt doubts, doubts perfectly fine. Doubt is like your, your road to wisdom. It's you wrestling with that. You may, you may wrestle with the Catholic doctrine on gay marriage or abortion until the day you die. And that's fine because in that wrestling, like you're going to be exploring different spiritual avenues and different intellectual avenues. And um, I think, you know, take that outside of religious ideas. And I think that, you know, is something that, that we really need to more confidently put forward, you know, that you can simply believe things. And so my, the reason this was my uh, answer to your question on that is by simply saying that, like, no, this is the idea that we represent, period. It, it's in a way making it an internal principle. You know, by saying that we don't have to defend it, doesn't require defense, is another way of saying that it's sacred in a way. It's inviolable, you know, and um, it, 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 it's really the only way to defend against um, to defend against an opposition, uh, which has a much easier job, you know, which is to poke holes and break down and, uh, and, and hinder. It's just a much easier job than building and preserving. It takes a lot less energy. Um, and it's a lot easier to, uh, you know, it, it, if you, if you have a, um, you know, if you have a controversial issue and two people are going to get put up on a stage to debate it, the person who, um, has to shoot down, you know, 
the the system of ideas that you're going to be talking about. It's going to have an easier job. Exactly, and and they are also able to to present the framing of the of the of the problem as well, um, because I feel like that's 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 a big problem that we have on the right, um, because the left always is much you know 10 steps ahead with framing every issue like for example you know a very very uh, apt example of what you were talking to about before was is you know the, the question of trans children um i feel like we're at the point where even the right has to be wrestling within the framework that the left has set out you know the fact that one you know trans people are what they say they are two that you know uh, live and let live is the best thing to, to apply to this three that, you know, children can consent in certain parameters. And now you have people and the conservative and social conservatives as well arguing about, you know, should it be 16, 17 or 18 year olds that can, you know, chop off their genitals or, or, you know, get uh, top surgery or uh, any other euphemism you want to add to that. So it's uh, the fact that Anytime you want to have any sort of socially conservative conversation, you're already like the maelstrom is already like 10, 20, 30 steps ahead. And you're, you're haggling over minute details of the, the enemy's frame that because that's essentially that's the problem I feel for, for conservatives. They, they accepted liberalism as the idea that, you know, live and let live. Well, live and let live is this maelstrom, you know, live and let live is is ripping every every little you know, substructure that you've built your civilization on with, with every conversation, you know, the idea that, like you said, everything has to be haggled over in the marketplace of ideas. These people are much better hagglers than you, uh, because you actually don't have any argument, you know, why, why, you know, why should, shouldn't children consent? Why is a, is a child, you know, less free than an adult? You know, why should it be 17? Why shouldn't it be 14? It's, it's all like arbitrary. And it's true. Like if you look at that from that perspective, why, you know, why, why some 17 year olds are very mature. I've met 17 year olds who are very mature. So like you said, it's so easy to shoot down and yeah, it's, it's, people should get much more comfortable with saying, you know, this is, this is it. These are my principles. And it's also something to be respected. Uh, I feel like if someone just shows up and, and is stalwart and and just you know is is filled and confident about where they stand, I think that's something that people haven't seen in a while. And I feel like yeah, yeah, maybe that's what you know people like Donald Trump brought to the scene. You know, he was he was had a, had a cocky confidence that was um, uh, just flew in the face of, of all of this negotiating, you know, the, the haggling marketplace of ideas. He had, you know, maybe 10 ideas. They were fixed. They were not necessarily very, uh, very uh, evolved or interesting. You wouldn't write op-eds about it. Uh, but they were, you know, predictable and he was very confident about asserting them. So I think that's uh, that's something people are missing. Yeah, the right is never going to, like we're in a moment right now, right, where the right is on, is the, is on the margins and obviously the left and liberalism owns the center owns all the institutions and so forth. So right now, you know, the, 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 the meme is that the left can't meme, right. And that's true right now. They're the establishment and the establishment is never really that good at memeing. And it's much easier to sort of be the subversive uh, group when you're on the outside. But um, it's uh, to me, like the right is never going to um, be successful long-term by positioning, like by trying to be out edgy, or, you know, out edgy the left or out subversive the left or, or anything like that. Uh, because eventually, hopefully, you know, you're going to be back in power, or at least something like that. And then if, if that's what you're trying to do, 
It's like what the left's trying to do now. They're trying to still be subversive and still be edgy, but they're in the center now and it's not working. And so they're, they're, they look silly and stupid doing it. Um, you know, if those roles get reversed, then we're going to find ourselves on, on in the same position. And, you know, the right has to represent itself and and what what uh, and 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 attract people through strength and through aesthetics and through confidence. That's the only way that the right. It's it's what makes the right worth having at all. You know, is embodying those principles. People need to look at it, and some people are always going to look at it and say, "Yeah, you know, those are the boring." stodgy old conservatives or whatever but other people are going to look and be like man they're strong they're confident like they you know they're they're they stand on principle and not in the david french sense you know um the right has to learn that you know i mean it's understandable right so like if you look at just take it back a little ways the way this stuff went down. I mean, there was like a deep power structure in this country that existed for a long time from the founding, right? You had your like old Anglo power structure. It started to sort of spread out all over the country um, when you got up into the post-Civil War period. And by the time you get up to like the 1880s, 1890s, you know, it's very difficult to um, for, for this power structure to run a country that, that, that spans from Philadelphia to Seattle and and, and all of this. And so it's very difficult. It takes a long time to put somebody on a train and send them over there and just for that group. And so they came up with something. They came up with progressive movement, capital P, right? Which was to create all of these managerial institutions that were going to get control of the fact that like you had all these, you know, these, these Irish and Italian immigrants that had taken over all the big cities and all this kind of stuff. We're going to take away the power of that a little bit. And this was the, you know, the progressive movement, the early progressive movement in, in a lot of ways was, an Anglo reassertion of power. You know, if you look at like, you know, the second KKK, which was obviously an uh, Anglo Anglo uh, sort of only movement by definition, right? Um, it started out, I think, in Atlanta in 1915, but it really didn't take root in the South at all. It took root took root up in the Midwest and the in, in the Western cities like Portland and Chicago and Cleveland and all these cities. And there weren't really any black people up there at that time. The Great Migration hadn't really started yet. Um, and so, uh, what were they concerned with? They didn't really talk much about black people. They were talking about Jews and immigrants and Catholics. And if you look like during the 1920s, during prohibition, you had a lot of these KKK groups that were going out and, uh, assassinating bootleggers and, um, intercepting like bootleg alcohol shipments. They were, the KKK was big on prohibition. And so like, it was this, it, there was an extent to which, um, there was this Anglo reassertion of power that happened from say like, you know, the 1880s or 90s up until like the 1920s or 30s. And um, when you get up to the 1960s, you know, that that what was left of that power structure by the 1960s just completely collapsed and fell apart during Vietnam and during the protest movement. You know, the um, they, they lost a lot of their children. I, I don't mean in Vietnam. They lost a lot of them sort of ideologically to the universities um, and to the protest movement that was going on. And it just didn't pass down. And they lost their confidence. That power structure that was there lost its confidence. And the same thing happened uh, with the Catholic power structure, which had actually built up as quite a quite a you know powerful cultural force by that point. I mean, it was it was uh, the Catholic League of Decency that was uh, maintaining like um, you know obscenity standards on on motion pictures, for example, up until the sixties. A lot of that kind of stuff came from came from the Catholics and. Just because the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s just delegitimized those two groups profoundly, and the field was just left open after that, and we're still kind of living with the consequences of it. 
You know, you have, um, you know, people like this, this, this animal who ran over all these people in Wisconsin recently. You read Pedro Gonzalez's article about, you know, all of this, just this guy's entire life. I mean, this guy is somebody who in any society prior to, um, a, you know, a Western European or American country uh, or a Western European or Anglo country until about like 1950 would have been like executed long ago. I mean, this is not a, this is a person that would have been handled or dealt with in some way. And he's just been going through wrecking people's lives for his entire life without any real consequences. And the reason for that, uh, part of the reason for it, I mean, th- th- I know there's some people out there um, who think that like, this is all kind of some big part of a grand plan, you know? Um, I, I don't necessarily think it requires that. It might be a grand plan of, uh, a grand plan of Satan's, but um, it, it is that, you know, uh, people are so, are so uh, terrified of that, 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 that 20 or 30 years from now, they're going to be the person with the fire hose shooting it at like the freedom riders. And people are going to look back at that picture and be like, Oh my God, these people were obviously wrong and evil or whatever. And they don't want to be the person who was shooting the fire hose at the freedom riders. And they're so obsessed with not being that person that they let people, they, that they, they refuse to intervene against people like this guy. And, and it's, um, it's just, it's a massive lack of confidence. You know, it was the, 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 the cultural revolution, the Vietnam war in the 1960s. Um, and, and the realization, this is the thing, right? Like the realization that, um, uh, that, 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 uh, the, the, there was a great deal of racial injustice in the country, like prior to the 1960s. Um, and the, the, the widespread acceptance of that by the white population of the country, um, it's it's something that ought to be recognized as a massive, like in quite unique um, moral advancement among the people. You know, something that like that, that a people of their own volition, without being forced to through violence or anything like that, like realized that what they were doing uh, was unjust and made massive sacrificial changes to do that. And instead, um, you know, it's it's something that is used against. Uh, those people, you know, their own, their own moral senses used against them. And um, it's hard to get over. We're still, you know, I, I think, um, I don't know if it'll outlast the boomers. And I do think that the left and liberals have probably pushed their luck with the trans and with the trans and the, the Islamic terror issues. I think those were two issues that um, they just sort of maybe hit the wall where people said, okay, you know, if you, these, these, we've got 9-11, we've got, uh, you know, 2016, we've got a terrorist attack happening every week, just about somewhere in Europe or whatever. And you can't even, you know, there's arguments over whether you can say it's Islamic terror or, you're, you know, and you take that. And then obviously the trans children thing, which I think if you put it to an honest, anonymous vote, 90% of the people in this country think is insane. Um uh, I think, and I and I hope that those two issues were probably the rocks that that their ship is going to run up on. Um, if not, if if this if this uh, line of defense doesn't hold, then uh, especially the trans children thing, I, I despair to uh, to picture where they're going to go next. Yeah, 
especially with COVID and seeing how people bend um, all over the world to some pretty insane um, intrusions in, into their daily lives. It's made me a, a bit hopeless um, in, in terms of how people react to, to, to politics um, because with, with every new encroachment on, on civil liberties or, or just, you know, I don't know, having your children see other people on the street, just a very, very basic human, human aspects of, of life. Um, people are, are not only um, bending to it, they're, they're somehow bringing it into their personal narrative and making it part of, of who they are. Um, and uh, there's, you know, even, even I have, I have, you know, friends from high school who are warring with me about vaccines and stuff like that. So they, they are now in the, in the vaccine system. They, they are special people. They're good people. They're making the vaccines and they're, they're hating the people who don't <laughs> take the vaccines. And it's, um it's, it's it is pretty crazy how efficient this this media machine is in meaning making especially for people who don't really have uh, any any other meaning and it's it's a gift that keeps on giving like every you know every six months there's there's another thing that people like uh, the people who are slightly unhinged can can latch on to and, and and bring into their personal narrative and and gain meaning from you know there was george floyd now there's you know like children here in in you know hicksville romania they talk about george floyd and black lives matter you know they've, they've barely ever seen a black person in their life but it's it's an important meaning making motor for for so many people Sure. Yeah. And, and and like you said, it's fertile ground when people don't have, uh, you know, a, a, a um, system of symbols that they're already rooted and grounded in. Um, and people today, I mean, this is, you know, this is one of the things if you want to talk about broad history and like where things are headed. Um, you know, I think that one thing that the dissident right is is very correct about in general, um, as much as I love paleocons, I think, you know, I don't think I've probably ever met a paleocon that I didn't love. Uh, but the one thing I, I think that the dissident right, non-paleocon dissident right, is correct about is that you just you cannot go backwards. It's just not going to happen. The community structures, that uh, you know, the, the local institutions, the relationships, the, the strong family units that supported the society that you want to go back to do not exist anymore. You know, the religious belief that that existed, none of that exists anymore. And we have to just accept that and deal with it. I mean, we can try to do things that are going to contribute to rebuilding those things, but that's a multi-generational project. You know, it takes one generation to destroy all those things. We don't know how long it takes to rebuild all those things. You know, that's a totally, that's a, it's a, that's an organic process, you know, that takes place under certain conditions that encourage it. And, um, and right now we don't have any of those things. And so you have to ask like, what, what historical moment uh, can we look to in history, for example, to you know, every, everybody likes to talk about um, you know the United States and the Roman Empire at the like late Republic period, and it's a little bit trite to bring it up, obviously. But there's something there's there are very interesting things to learn about, right? Like if you look at like what happened when Rome conquered Carthage and took over the Mediterranean, they start importing millions of slaves back to Italy, and all of these citizen farmers that had been Roman citizens who had been like, you know, they provide their own armor and they go out during the war season to support, you know, the glory of Rome. Uh, they start losing their land to these massive economies of scale that are, you know, the result of these slaves that are coming in and they flood into the cities and all of the family structures and all of the sort of interlocking relationships that 
that existed out in the rural countryside among these people in their villages and in their, you know, uh, their, their nearby farms, you go into the city and they're living in big tenement buildings and all of that goes away. And what you've got now is you've got an urban mob, you know, the famous urban mob, and they start to get demagogues and then you get the whole cycle, right? And I mean, nobody needs to, like the parallels are, are so obvious that again, it becomes trite to mention it. We didn't have a bunch of slaves. We had the industrial revolution. And so instead of having these massive economies of scale with slaves, it was, you know, with, uh, with, with machinery and, and illegal immigrants, I guess, which is like a, you know, part of that. Um, but you know, and so you go into the, like the Great Depression and you see like a parallel, a parallel process happening in the United States and in the Soviet Union. And um, in the Soviet Union, you've got Joseph Stalin in the early 30s doing things like the Holodomor. And if you look at like, well, what was the Holodomor about? What was he doing? Did he just not like Ukrainians? Yeah, I didn't like Ukrainians, sure. Uh, but what he was doing was trying to uh, do an accelerated industrialization, urbanization of uh, the Soviet Union. He, you know, had you had all these independent farmers spread out there with their little patches of land. Maybe they had a couple dozen acres or something, and uh, that's just that's not efficient. What we need is big factory farms that can just put you know certain cash crops over ten thousand acres, and it's all going to be run by expensive machinery. And all the rest of you people who are running all these farms, we need you in the cities, building the tractors and building like doing these things, and so. The people out there were, you know, they said, no, thank you. And um, so he forced them to do it. You look over at the United States during the Great Depression, it wasn't that ugly, but you had armed sheriffs going out and evicting millions of people from their farms during the Great Depression. And it was because of, you know, there's an economic downturn and they couldn't pay their debts and so on and so forth. But the reality of it is state power was going out there and forcing millions of people off of their farms. Those people were flooding into the cities looking for work. So it has this like sort of voluntary mask a little bit compared to something like the Soviet Union. But at the end of the day, the same process is taking place. And one way or another was going to take place, probably it was going to be forced. You know, it's something you can maybe think of today similarly, like, you know, that what people point out all the time, how like when it comes to surveillance technology, the use of surveillance technology and things in population management that China always seems to be just like 10 years ahead of us. And that whatever they do, it's like they're doing by force and just, you know, we don't care. We're just going to do it. Things that we do sort of like by, you know, well, there's a crisis, so we have to do this. And, you know, maybe just sort of push it out into the market and people will buy these, whatever it is. But the same process is happening. And now we've got a government that surveils our population as much as China did 10 years ago. And, um, you know, the, the, these are these are things that we have to contend with that are very difficult. You know, it's it, especially when you talk about, you know, what's going on today. Like one of the questions I ask myself all the time, and sorry, I'm talking so much. These Jocko Go energy drinks, which everybody should buy, are very effective. Um, is is that uh, you know I, the, one of the questions I ask myself all the time is what happens when you have a ruling class, a ruling regime? that has like legitimacy among themselves and like 5% of their hangers on, you know, virtually nobody supports them. Um, but they have propaganda and surveillance technology that allows them to maintain control long past a point where they would have been overthrown in the past. That's a very interesting question, you know? 
I also wanted to to ask you about the the recent Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. I'm I know this isn't uh, like a, a big historical theme, you know. I try to make this podcast timeless as well, um, but it seems to be um, like an interesting. I, I feel like it's it's a pretty monumental event from from many perspectives. And you had this this extraordinary podcast about it recently, um, where you shared your perspective. So I, I what do you think this means? Because it's it's a bit it's a positive, it's a win for our side. But what do you think this verdict means in in, in the context of of what's coming up for for the for the right wing? Um, I think it depends on how we how we respond to it and how we use it. You know, um, like I said, the, the 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 problem on our side for 50 years now has been uh, just a total collapse in confidence, and um, that confidence is what has to be rebuilt. Um, the, you know, the, if you think of like something like libertarianism, for example, is uh, in a lot of ways. I, I know this is, this gets said a lot, but it really is true. It's like it's a retreat for conservatives. It's a place where they can go and be like, I'm libertarian. Don't hurt me. Right. And so Ben, Ben, Ben Shapiro can be uh, against gay marriage his whole career. And then once like public opinion kind of like passes that 51% mark on it, now he's libertarian on the issue. It's like, Oh, the state should stay out of marriage. It's just sort of like that retreat. Right. And, um, you know, we have to get enough confidence to not, to not need a retreat like that. So, uh, you know, I, I, this is like if you want if you want the peaceful sort of optimistic hope of what could happen, right? Uh, and I'll and I'll get to Rittenhouse in one second. Uh, my my sort of big grand hope, a way that we can avoid civil war collapse um, or Bolshevik tyranny, um, is that the something that I do see happening on the ground, people I know, um, but you see it in voting patterns as well is that Latinos in America are starting to turn on, on the left. And um, a, a, a lot of them are uh, not buying into a lot of the identity politics. Sure, the ones they ship off to college and stuff, some of them are buying into it, but a lot of them are not buying into it. Um, they see the left encouraging African-American race riots in the cities, and they do not like that. Um, and they're starting, you're really starting to see a change. And if that continues, and if you get more Pedro Gonzalez's out there, um, I think, like, I really think that, like, that would be the thing that uh, the, the right needs to regain the confidence to actually stand on something. Because it's a lot easier to stand up to somebody who's calling you a racist when you got two brown guys on either side of you. And that sort of alliance between... Um, you know, the Latino, the conservative Latino population, you know, I, I lived up north of where I am now. I'm in San Diego and I lived up near Oxnard not too long ago, um, worked at a, worked at a DOD installation. And, um, there's, there's a lot of strawberry fields and other agricultural fields around that area. And most of it is worked by, uh, immigrants, some, you know, a lot of illegal immigrants, but a lot of just people who are Americans now who, who live there and work the fields. And, you know, I would drive into work from Los Angeles and uh, I would get, get in there at five thirty, six o'clock in the morning. And these people are out there like bent over, you know, in the fields at five 30 in the morning. And, um, you know, when they, when they finish like filling up like a basket or a box, they put that thing over their head and they don't walk, they run to the truck to deposit it. Cause they don't get paid by the hour. They get paid like by how much they pick. And I, I'll never forget like the first time and it happened every day, but the first time I ever noticed it, 
um, I was driving in and uh, through one of these really poor neighborhoods, you know, it's trailers and kind of like, you know, tra- trailers with, uh, you know, um, like, like bootlegged electrical wires, like connecting them all together so that they could share their electrical, you know, electricity, things like that. And um, all immigrants. And uh, I was driving in and there was a school bus with all the kids like waiting to pick them up and bring them to school. And these were like middle schoolers. These were like seventh, eighth grade kids. And if there were 50 kids there, 40, 50 kids, there were at least 30 parents there. And they were putting their kids on, they were hugging their kids and putting them on the bus. And when they were leaving, the parents were like waving to them. This wasn't like the first day of school. This was just a day. It was like a Wednesday in the middle of the year. And I saw that and I was like, damn, like, you know, there's some, there's some cultural issues and some various other things that like you always need to work through when you deal with like an immigrant population. But I want those people on my side. Like anybody who is like, I didn't get walked out to the school bus when I was a kid. I don't know anybody who got walked out to the school bus and had their parents waving to them like as they were going off. Like that's a concerned parent. And a concerned parent is the most powerful person you can possibly have on the right, you know, because uh, it comes down to like the way you open the conversation or uh, close to the, it's close to the beginning asking about God is it comes down to like a question about concern for the future, you know? And um, I, I, you know, I hope that like, uh, you know, maybe a lot of what we're seeing right now, you know, normally you have like a generational turnover every 20 years or so and not had that happen because the boomers have held on to power much, much longer than uh, most generations do. And the millennials as a result of that um, have not been able to move forward in their careers and start families and buy houses and do all the things that people normally do when they hit their twenties and thirties. And so you have like, you know, among millennials, like people aren't getting married until late. All of that's been delayed. And so this period of time where, you know, that normally you'd have maybe 20 years of like sort of leftward movement and political correctness. And then like the generations would turn over and there'd be sort of a pushback because the generations that were pushing it kind of like, you know, the millennials, just like the people in the sixties, everybody, you go back to like the 1960s and people are like, oh my God, when these people are in power, it is just going to be, the 1980s are going to be insane, right? They're, and it turned out that like, no, not really. Those people had kids and like, whatever. And yeah, eventually like, you know, when, when they were senators and CEOs and stuff, we have some problems. Uh, but a lot of that also, I think, is due to the fact that millennials identify with their grandparents, like all kids do, more than their parents. And so, um, you know, the... Uh, uh, hopefully, as millennials start to move into that next stage, you know, they finally start to be able to buy houses and and, and so on and so forth. Um, if BlackRock doesn't buy them all, uh, then things will start to change. Um, I, I totally got away from your question. So, um, Rittenhouse, right? So, yeah. Uh, you know, I think that, like, the, the, the thing that I wanted to talk... The reason I did that episode, like, you know, my, a lot of my history listeners they don't want to hear me talk that much about politics. And so I, I usually don't um, on my podcast, unless I have something like sort of metapolitical or, or maybe a historical point to make. And, um, you know, I, I think we really need to recognize that we're in a very unique uh, moment in American history. Like, I don't think that uh, you go back to the 1960s, go back to the 1960s, when you had millions of people protesting, I mean, if you think about it now, if you go watch a documentary in the 60s, you'd think that like everybody was a protester except for, you know, William F. Buckley or something. Um, 
But you go back there and all of the things that were happening, you know, uh, especially the the uglier side of it, you know, the, you didn't have any Democratic politicians shilling for uh, the Black Liberation Army or, or the Weather Underground. You had some radical chic celebrities and so on and so forth, but whatever. Like, they didn't have any institutional support. You know, it was a Democratic mayor, uh, you know, Democratic Mayor Daley, uh, Richard Daley in Chicago, that ordered the police to go crack down on the protesters and rioters in 1968 at the Democratic Convention. Nobody was down with that kind of stuff. When you started getting violent, when you started, like, going outside the institutions to, like, you know, people recognize that this is a systemic breakdown that will destroy everything. Like the minute, the minute we sort of start tolerating that. And, um, you know, if you would have had, uh, one of the vice presidential candidates during, uh, you know, the 1968 election, um, go out during the Martin Luther King assassination riots and uh, start bailing people out after they burned down a police station or saying on TV that the riots should not stop. That person would have got dropped from the ticket and every Democrat would have would have cheered that. We're in a very, very different and strange and, and, and quite alarming time right now. And I think a lot of people don't quite recognize it because they have total control over the propaganda apparatus and because we've sort of, we've sort of been like frog boiled into it. You know, although it has ramped up very quickly and obviously that has led to a lot of people really waking up. But like you're in a very, very dangerous situation when you have uh, this many elite institutions, you know, the Democratic Party, most of the corporate media, um, you know, the universities, uh, almost just you know, virtually all of them, um, corporations uh, who, who fund the media, but also who provide, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to organizations like Black Lives Matter, that um, you're in a very dangerous time when you have these type of organizations who are explicitly supporting people going outside the political process in order to, you know, to, to apply pressure for the policies and, and uh, other things that they want. And um, the 2020 was really the culmination of that, you know? It, it was something that, you know, the 2020 riots when uh, <laughs> when we'd all been locked in our houses, you know, for a couple months by that point, told that like you'll get arrested if you take your kid to the park, and you know, just you can't get near anybody, or we're all gonna die. And then all of a sudden, you've got like fifty million people on the streets or something, and it's not just like chill politicians or or celebrities, but public health officials who are coming out and saying, oh, nope. Um, that's when, you know, that, that is an indication that, um, you know, you're, you're dealing with something much more than just, um, people's, uh, sort of emotional responses. I mean, it's hard to look at what was going on in 2020 as anything other than a sort of, um, explosion of, of left-wing paramilitaries, even if they didn't recognize themselves as that at the time, you know, that's how they were used. You know, a lot of the people, if you go to like, you know, the color revolutions that we put on in like Ukraine, for example, a lot of the people who are there at Maidan, they're not there to like carry out America's color revolution. They've been propagandized into going out there to for the cause, you know. And so it, it doesn't necessarily speak to the motivations of all the people who were out there in 2020. But the fact of the matter is like that they are tools of the regime. And um you know you're in a you're in a you're in a dark place when uh the regime is uh is not just using say police or military or official institutions against you which in a way is less scary it really is because 
you know, obviously they're more efficient and powerful killers than the mob. Um, but it, it, there's some structure to the violence there, you know, and you can, you can, um, you can address it in a sort of, you, maybe you could take back power. Maybe you could um, influence the people who control it and convince them this is a bad idea. It's going to damage your legitimacy or whatever. When um, people are, you know, weaponizing segments of the population uh, against the rest of the population, that's a, that's a very dangerous thing. And, um, you know, I think the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict was in a lot of ways, um, the reason to really be celebrating it isn't just that, well, the main reason is that that innocent kid isn't going to spend the rest of his life in jail is that, um, you know, Hey, say what you want about like how degraded we are as a, as a country and political culture right now. Um, but this is still a country where the entire media virtually a major political party, the one that's in control of the presidency, the president himself, the, the party that's in control of Congress, um, and the, the party that, that most of the, you know, bureaucrats and most of the people who are like the managerial class, every single one of those people wanted that kid's head. But at the end of the day, they don't get to choose. They still don't get to choose. And like, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to 12 people who are his peers who get to make that decision. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm usually like, uh, Spengler is like my most influential writer. You know, I read him back when I was in my late teens and he's just left an indelible, like deep mark. So I can get pretty like pessimistic, you know, optimism is cowardice, like a lot of the times, but I'll tell you what, that is something that we should keep in mind is that in virtually every country throughout history and in most countries in the world today, the fact that all those people wanted his head would have been enough. And it's still not enough here. And that is something to hold on to and something to fight for. Yeah, there's there's a layer of of scale that that politics gets with technology and this um, essentially rule by media that you have when when all of these means are, are owned by the regime. You can't really describe it in any other way. There is one regime, that's it, and there's like a you know a mascot outer party that's uh, that's you know doing its bidding. Yes. Well. Um, yeah, I mean w- one thing that m- might make me hopeful a little bit is that um, I, I've I've listened to a few of your other podcasts and then you describe uh, your, your life as, you know, having, having uh, roots and like a, a tough childhood. And I mean, we, we won't go into, into detail because uh, you've, you've expounded on that in other, other podcasts, but um, I feel like that's kind of influenced you on a personal level to understand the value of order, to understand, you know, why these values are, are useful. And I feel like, and it looks like we're heading for lean times, um, and things are going to get tougher before they get better. And I feel like a lot of people are going to have um, personal collisions with disorder. Because for me, that that was essentially, that's also what Curtis Yarvin says. There's nothing that's going to make you more right wing than, you know, me coming from like a little small town in Romania and going to like a big city like London and seeing the level of urban crime that was just like rampant around me and the silence, the like, imposed silence on on that and the fact that you know if you manage to coast by without you know getting stabbed or mugged you know call call yourself lucky and you know just shut up about it and that was just too much of a cognitive dissonance for me and that's from that point i i turned i was like no 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 we need to explore why this is happening uh because it's too crazy so i feel like more and more people are going to have that experience hopefully please <laughs> do uh, yeah. and, and that's you know i think that's the biggest red pill isn't it 
It, yeah, it's definitely, um, it, it, yeah, my experience has definitely um, made me appreciate order as well as my, so I was in uh, the military for 10 years, but then also I worked for the Department of Defense for 10 years after that. And I spent six, seven, eight months of the uh, of the year, sometimes 10 months a year traveling overseas, a lot of time in the Middle East and East Africa and other places. So I've seen, you know, I've seen enough of the rest of the world to understand that like, what we have here, this is not some natural occurrence. This is like, this is a hothouse plant that needs a very specific environment and needs care and feeding. And without any of those things, this reverts to nature. And nature is not, uh, you know, Bel Air. Nature is Kabul. That's that's nature. And um, so it definitely made me appreciate that, you know, and, and, and also like growing up the way I did, um, it helped me very much appreciate uh, the social recognize the social pathologies that result from a lot of the things that we call liberation, you know, um, that when you're dealing with people who, uh, you know, are at the margins or in the lower class, um, that, you know, a lot of the time, these are people who are profoundly influenced by propaganda, propound, you know, they don't, they just, um, there's, there's, you need, you need a ruling class. Well, you call it that anymore. I mean, it's so ridiculous because like, we don't even have like, you know, <laughs> anything that could like remotely be called elites in any, in any, in any real sense anymore. Everybody's kind of similarly degraded, but like, uh, you know, you do need to have like a ruling class for lack of a better term that models behavior for people in general, because people naturally gravitate toward high status behavior. That's <laughs> just, you know, we can say it like you can argue people into it or like represent the position, but the reality is, is that people gravitate toward high status behavior. And, um, you know, when, uh, yeah, well, it, you know, when you have a ruling class that largely is not preaching what it practices, as Charles Murray says, um, you, you know, it, yeah, I have a, I have a great appreciation for how that shakes out at the, at the, at the bottom of the scale. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that you kind of have to live through to, to, to really experience, to see, see what happens and to see what it means to, to wreck the, the societal commons, you know, the, the moral commons of a, of a society, uh, and, and how it trickles down to, to some people, you know, a lot of intellectuals and people who, who talk for a living or write for a living imagine that, um, life is, is like writing an op-ed, you know, you, you, measure different areas you you I don't toy with different arguments you Matt, you put yourself in the shoes of your opponent and you come come to a, a very refined conclusion of what you should do most people just are going through life trying to make ends meet and and survive and feed their children and they really don't have time to to literally think about this stuff and i feel like you know the the problem of liberalism is that you can't really say that you know you can't really say that people are, mm-hmm. are rational about their day to day they're not thinking about things you know because that collapses the idea of democracy because if everyone's and most people are uninformed voters and they just vote with their instincts then uh, or whatever propaganda they're fed then oh my god you know what what does that say about the system so this is another big thing that we shouldn't talk about but uh, it's it's obvious and and the problem is that because because liberalism has this this idea baked into it um they've they've made it acceptable to to rip down these these moral commons and um it's it's still going on and it's it's, it's really- one of the things that you know one of my biggest gripes with libertarians i'm thinking about writing an open letter to libertarians dave smith said he'd read it and talk to me about it if i did so like is that i mean there's a lot of things to gripe about with libertarians right but 
the primary one, or if you get to like boil it down, I think my, my gripe with them is like, I'm, I'm basically libertarian instincts. If I were the emperor, you would all live in basically a libertarian society. All right. Um, but libertarianism is not something that uh, just results naturally when you take away the institutions and structures of power, right? You have to actually create a society that is capable of fostering and sustaining liberty over the long term. And so a libertarian, they always stop at like the first order of consequences, right? They go around and they look for and identify instances of coercion. And they say, aha, that's an instance of coercion. That should not happen. You're forcing somebody to do something they don't want to do, non-aggression principle, whatever. So this guy owns this factory in this Midwest town. It's his factory. It's private property. Why? If we start interfering with what people can do with their private property, it'll lead right down the road to serfdom. And so if he wants to move it to China, you know, for a marginal profit increase, then that's his right to do. Perfectly logical. Hard to argue with that from like a logical perspective if you're somebody who at base level values liberty as most Americans do. Um, but what happens when you do that in that town and another town and another town, another town, and it happens across the country. And now what you have is you had a, you had a community of people with stable lives, with intact families, um, you know, with a low level of social pathology. And that's actually a, a community of people that is perfectly capable of defending liberty over the long term and is probably interested in doing so. Um, you take that factory away in the name of liberty, and now what do you have? You have broken families, you have a ruined community, you have people with unstable lives who have who have experienced an extreme dislocation in their lives, um, people with probably more alcohol problems, children that are going to be raised by these like less intact families, and so on. That is not a society that's going to be either interested in or capable of defending liberty, right? And I mean, that's just that's the, if if the libertarian party, instead of being this sort of like a, you know crusader uh, sort of like unit that went around looking for instances of coercion to call them out, became a, a party or a movement that was interested in creating a society, building a society that could actually foster liberty on its own. I you know I. I um, wouldn't become one of them, but I would, I would support them, you know? And, uh, yeah, that's, that's just not where we're at. I mean, you have to be, you have to do things that sometimes look like restrictions of liberty in order to build a society that's capable of sustaining it. Exactly. And and in a way, I feel like the, the, the definition of liberty that libertarians have is, is very deficient. It's just, you know, liberty from, but then, True liberty, in my perspective, is, is kind of that Aristotelian conception where you build yourself into something that uh, an animal capable of being free. Because yeah. at, at base, you know, if you if you are like the the, the perfect leftist subject that's just con- continuously consuming all the all the things that are presented to you, uh, you're not really very free. You're you're a slave to your your urges, your you know clickbait, whatever they're feeding you. Um, even if you're a good consumer, uh, you're you're very much a slave to to the apparatus. Um, but but if you were to make yourself free, and I think, you know, this is essentially Jocko Willink's entire shtick is, you know, discipline is freedom. And it sounds kind of weird, obviously, because it's like, oh, discipline is, is kind of, you're, you're, you're self-coercing yourself. But it's, uh, it's through that practice, you actually do become free in a much more elevated sense. And I feel like that's, that's definitely what's, what's missing. Where you have agency, right? Which is really what people want. I mean, and, and freedom, you know, freedom is an empty space to be filled by something. Um, 
say freedom to what, like really like what liberty is, is like the freedom to choose what you're going to serve. That's really what it is. Cause you're going to serve something that that's serving. Nothing's not an option. Something will find you. And, um, you would do, you know, is it something that's going to suck you in and pull you in? Or is it something that you're going to be able to choose based on the kind of life and world you're trying to build? And that's really what freedom is. And the idea that, you know, freedom is, is, is freedom from all constraint and freedom from all obligations. I mean, golly, that's just a, <laughs> I don't know who came up with that idea, but it's just, it's so patently insane to me that um, it's amazing that it ever caught on as well as it did. Yeah, it's it's demonic. That's that's what it is. It's you know, it's essentially the 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 whisper of the serpent in in the garden. Yeah. yeah. Well, mm-hmm. um, we're we're coming up on time here. I want to ask you the question of the show, which everyone gets asked. Um, oh, I should have I should have been ready for this. Go don't ahead. worry. <laughs> it's, a, it's just whatever comes up. Uh, I'm sure you know you have a lot of a lot of stuff behind you. I'm sure something will come up. I know Spengler is a is a big one. We're gonna say that. Um, so the question is. A subversive thinker, um, someone who's influenced you that you'd recommend that people should, you know, check out or you think is is a bit underrated. Wow! Oh, wow! There's so many. Um, I would say uh, I could I could go on Spangler, but if I do, then um, we'll be here for another hour. So I'll actually tell you one of my absolute favorite books of all time. I've read it. Uh, Gosh, I must have read it 10 times. It's an absolutely incredible book. Um, it's a book of philosophy, but it's not dry. It's incredibly beautifully written. Um, it's called Icarus Fallen by Chantal Del Sol, a, a French woman. Died a few years ago. It was written, I think, maybe in like 89 or 91, something like that. And um, you know, the premise of the book that she starts with, that image of Icarus Fallen, is that we in the West are kind of, um, you know, you have the story of Icarus who flew too close, close to the sun and his wax wings melted and he fell down into the ocean and he drowned. And she says, okay, well, let's say he didn't fall into the ocean. Now let's say that he fell down into a, uh, a dumpster. And now this is a guy who like almost made it to the sun. He almost flew up to the sun. He had these dreams of that. And now he's covered in filth and his wings are gone. And now he has to like wake up the next day and live. Um, in, in live a life in a world where he's not, he's not going up to reach the sun. That's not going to happen. He actually has to go get a job tomorrow and actually like build a life and make it work. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. You know, a lot of people there's, you know, think of all the, uh, all the bankers that jumped off buildings in, uh, you know, when, when the market crashed in 1929, you know, these are probably people who had the resources even after the stock market crashed to go live a nice middle-class life, you know, um, go be an accountant somewhere. And they had enough savings to like, but you know, they just, you know, Icarus couldn't, couldn't get his life back together. And that's kind of where we're at collectively in a lot of ways. You know, we thought we were going to build this perfect society, whether technology or democracy or whatever it was, was going to deliver us from everything. And the 20th century taught us that that was never in the cards. And in fact, all of the things that, we devoted ourselves to with the most moral fervor very often turned out to be uh, pure evil when they were put into practice. And, um, you know, again, it, go, it goes a lot to um, that lack of confidence that we have now to actually stand for something. And um, that that's the book. Absolutely. I, I recommend that book to absolutely everyone left, right and center. I think everybody will love it. Chantel Del Sol, Icarus Fallen. Excellent. Yeah, I, I haven't heard of that book yet. So this is a you, you, you in particular will like it very much. 
Okay, perfect. I, I'll, I'll I'll look it up. I mean, I'm I'm just I'm waiting for that time where the baby sleeps through the night. Right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, good luck. <laughs> I can recover my vitality and my reading potential, but soon, soon, hopefully. Um, so I I just want to thank you so much for coming on. This has been a very very good episode. Like I'm I'm just like and now I'm just making little clips of it, and I'm like, yeah, everything should be a clip because this is just so <laughs> packed with knowledge. I love it, um, and. I want to direct everyone to uh, the Barter Made podcast um, and your podcast with Jocko Villing, which I haven't listened to yet, but I will soon, The Unraveling, um, and also the Substack, martyrmade.substack.com. Uh, please do uh, sign up for it. Excellent podcasts. Uh, a, a nice compliment to this subversive podcast. Mo- mostly these these long, very well-narrated, very well-researched podcasts. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's excellent. And I just want to thank you for everything you do. It's, uh, yeah. Amazing work. Thanks. Yeah, we can do this again sometime if you like. I know that I ran my mouth pretty much the entire time. So if there were questions or things you didn't want to cover that you didn't get to cover, we can do it again. So Excellent. well, I we definitely will. I'm I'm excited to do it again and I'm happy we ran you rough because it was just, yeah, really, really good stuff. Great. I'm glad you liked it. If you like what you're hearing, wanna see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you.